Okay, well, uh, good morning again, everybody. It is uh, good to be up here. We are rounding out our Advent series, and next week we'll begin a couple of weeks of, of Christmas. Um, and uh, this week I was doing some research, I was thinking about the sermon, and I, I read that um, uh, there was something going on with the cast of Hamilton this week. Does anybody see, everybody knows about Hamilton, right? Has anybody actually... Nobody's been, right? Has anybody been? Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, going to Hamilton is kind of impossible, right? It's the most popular Broadway show uh, in years. I think still the tickets are like over five hundred dollars for the worst seats. Um, but I found out that this week, uh, Christmas Eve, is going to be the last performance uh, of the the last original cast member. So this is like the, the the transition when they're finally everyone will have handed over their roles to the the second string guys to a new actor who's going to fill the role and, and carry it on from that point out. Um, and I this is actually the end of a process that started a few months ago. It kind of made some news that Lin Manuel Miranda, the guy who wrote the play and starred in the play, announced that he was no longer going to be performing the role of Hamilton. He handed it over to his his understudy, Javier Munoz, who's like another really famous uh, Broadway guy. But he mentioned that it wouldn't be his last performance ever, and that occasionally he would come back to the stage and he would have a surprise, you know, he would show up by surprise and be Hamilton again for the night. And I got to thinking about that, what that would be like. This is the, the great thing. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. Um, I got to thinking about that, and I, I realized, you know, on those nights, the nights when Lynn manuel Miranda shows up, even if it's just five minutes before curtain, there's going to be no question about who plays Hamilton that day, right? Even if, even if the guy playing him now ends up doing it for years and years, even if he is thought of as, as the Hamilton for now, he will never fully own that role. It will be an easy decision for him to step aside and let the guy who wrote the play, who created the play, who is the reason why uh, the job even exists, to let him take that position. And I bring that up because today, in our text, we're dealing with a much different kind of guy. In Herod the Great, the king of Judea, we are dealing with a guy uh, who is the, the, the king of this small province, and yet when the king of the universe shows up, he refuses to step aside. He refuses to give up his starring role, but instead he stands his ground and does everything he can possible to retain his position. And while the history is unique, while this only happens once, Herod's reaction is nothing new. Herod's behavior is something that we see all the time. And so today, I just have three simple points that I want to get across as we look at this story. And one is, we all act like Herod. Every single one of us. We all act like Herod. And we need to change. The second point is, the path to change is really painful. And the third one is, but, the, but it is grounded in the good news. So, we all act like Herod and we need to change. The path to change is painful, but it's grounded in good news. Now, before we talk about Herod, uh, before we look at this passage, there's a few things you need to know about this historical figure, about Herod the Great. It's a, first of all, he is not the same Herod 
that you find in the Easter, uh, the Passion narrative. He's not the same Herod that's at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. This is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is uh, the king of Judea, and he is notoriously violent. He was also notoriously paranoid about his power. If you pick up a history book and read about him, you find that his life, uh, his ascension to the throne, reads a lot like House of Cards. There's a, there's a lot of similarities between him and Frank Underwood. He was, uh, Herod was a, a guy who came to power through war and through victories in battle, but also through being very sly and manipulative for, from weaseling his way into the favor of the, the emperor and the people above him. Um, and in his wake, there are a lot of bodies left behind. Um, most of his reign, once he became the king, was characterized by the fear of losing his power. And so just a year before our text today, just a year before uh, he hears about the arrival of the Messiah, in 7 BC, Herod the Great had his two favorite sons killed. He had them uh, sentenced to death by strangulation because somebody convinced him that they were uh, plotting against him. Also, during his career, he murdered every single viable heir to the king prior to him. He killed the high priest. He killed his mother-in-law. All of it because he was trying to protect his throne. And, and even uh, a little after this, a few days before his, his death, Herod the Great killed his firstborn to protect his throne. And so when you put that in context, when you bring in some of the history, you realize that these wise men, when they show up and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? This message did not stand a chance. Uh, it tells us in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. <laughs> that's, that's quite an understatement. What Herod goes on to do, what we just read a second ago, is he does what he did best. He sends people to this town of Bethlehem to kill all the children under two years old. And in a town the size of Bethlehem, that was probably at least 20 or 30 children. That kind of evil is really difficult to comprehend. If you sit down and you think about what that must have been like, the massacre of children... History calls that event the slaughter of the innocents. These kids were innocent, right? They had done nothing wrong. They weren't actually uh, plotting to take over Herod's throne, and yet he killed them. How could somebody do that? How could someone do something so heinous? Well, when we get to this character, we actually come to a concept that comes up quite a bit when we study God's Word. Something that we, I think, are coming back to over and over and over again this year. And that is, you know, as we read the Bible, we tend to put ourselves on the sides of the good people. We tend to side with the heroes in the story. We, we read it and we imagine ourselves standing with them. But when we look further into the characters, when we look further into these people and their motives, you find that you're a lot more like the villains than maybe you thought before. See, right here in our passage, 
What Herod is dealing with, what Herod has to literally contend with, is the very same thing that we have to deal with this week, this last week of Advent as we head into Christmas. He is dealing with the message of Advent. The message that Jesus, the rightful king, has come to claim his throne. Jesus, the rightful king, has come to claim his throne, but we're still sitting in it. Now, that idea, a throne that is wrongly occupied, that's actually something that you find a lot in movies. It comes up a lot in literature. It's the story in Robin Hood, isn't it? The story of Prince John who's sitting on the throne while King Richard is away. It's the story in Lord of the Rings. The steward of Gondor is occupying the throne, waiting for the king to return. And I'm pretty sure that it's also the plot of the Thor movies now. I don't know if you watched them. I'm not, I can't totally keep those straight, but I think that's what's going on. But in those stories, it's always the same. How does it end? Do the usurpers give up? Do they just step down and go away quietly? No, they don't. They fight. They want power. They want to be the ones who are in charge. And the message in Scripture says that we are all like that. That every single one of us, we are phony kings and queens when it comes to the rule and the control of our own lives. That each and every one of us, we have a a deep-seated desire to be the ones in charge, to be the ones calling the shots. And so we wind up putting ourselves in the center. We wind up putting ourselves in a position of authority that we are not wise enough, that we are not holy enough, that we are not big enough to occupy. The thing we find out time and time and time again is that we have a deep-seated hostility towards God residing in our hearts. And maybe you think I'm exaggerating. Or maybe you agree with me, but, but you think I'm really talking more about somebody else. I want to assure you, I'm talking about you. If you could just take a minute right now and, and examine your own heart. And maybe what I need to do right now is just speak to the Christians in the room for a second. Because I think the Christians, as Christians, we are the most likely to miss this. So let me ask you, Christians, do you believe the core doctrines of your faith? Do you believe that your purpose on this earth is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Yeah, right? You do. Well, do you believe that, maybe the way John Piper put it, that God is most satisfied, most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with Him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the pleasures of this world are only a shadow? That they pale in comparison to the fulfillment that Christ can offer us? Do you believe those things? Yeah? Well, if you believe those things, then I bet your life must really reflect those values. I bet that you probably have spent a lot more time this month giving your money away than lusting after gadgets and toys. Man, I bet if you believe this, that that you're probably a really prayerful person. 
If you know that the most restful place on earth is in the presence of God, then I bet you really prioritize spending time in his word and in prayer. Maybe your life looks like an instruction manual for submission to God's will. You probably are the kind of person who loves your neighbor in a way that that other people think is crazy. I bet you serve your spouse or your roommates in such a sacrificial way. And those old lusts, those old addictions, those lies and the hiding that other people have to deal with, I bet you that you left that stuff behind a long time ago. No, (laughs) that's not you. Well, why not? You're a Christian. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. Why not? Well, here's how Paul puts it. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on his own life in Romans 7, he says, this is what his life looks like. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, what Paul is reflecting on is that inside each and every one of us, there is this deep-seated Herod mentality. And that ever since that first moment, ever since that first moment when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, when he said, did God really say that to you? when he suggested, you know, maybe God's holding out. Maybe life would be better if if you got to call the shots for a little while. In that moment, when that occurred, something inside of us twisted. Something inside of us contorted. And ever since then, our continual instinct has been to reject the authority of God and claim our lives as our own. Just like Herod, we see the lordship of Christ as a threat to our autonomy. We see Jesus as a threat rather than the source of our salvation. And even the Christians here, even the ones of us who profess him as Lord, we struggle to let him truly rule. So what do we do about it? How do we change? Well, I think what we can learn here from this account is that there is a path to change. There is a way for us to be different, but it's not easy. It's a painful path. we got two kingdoms here on display, if you look at it. One kingdom is the kingdom of Herod. And it is a kingdom that is defined by force and brutality. It's defined by violence, but also impotence. 
it doesn't accomplish its purposes. Then on the other hand, you have this kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and it is defined by weakness, by humility, by a baby in a small town. And yet, it is one that is a story of triumph and victory. Now, Herod, he was a skilled warrior. He won a ton of battles. One of the ways he got to this position uh, was by assisting the emperor in a bunch of various wars. And he, all, he always came out on top. He always won. And yet, here, Herod gets engaged in a battle with the sovereign God, and it's almost uh, humorous to see how badly he loses. I mean, the way this turns out, it's like when, when a child is trying to fight an older sibling and, and they just put their hand on their head, you know, and they're punching and thrashing and getting really angry, but it's useless. It's almost silly. Look at the story. Look at how much effort Herod takes to defeat this Messiah. And he gets frustrated at every single turn. It starts out in verse 8. Herod, he says to the wise men after they come, it says, He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? That's his plan, that they'd come back and they'd let him know where he is. But they're not dumb enough for that. They, can't, they don't fall for that. And you hope not, right? I mean, their, their professional title is wise men. They should, they should be able to see through this very thinly veiled attempt to attack Jesus. So they do see through it. They don't, they don't come back. And when Herod realizes that he has been tricked, it tells us, when he found out that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. He goes and he wipes out all of the children in this town. But we see in the verses before it that Mary and Joseph were long gone before he ever showed up. And if you read it the way Matthew puts it, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. They fled to Egypt. And this shows us that it's not only that God was one step ahead of them, but God was hundreds of years ahead of him, that he was fulfilling prophecies that he had written a long time ago. Herod's complete impotence, his total weakness would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. And we don't read this in the text, but we do know uh, that historically, after this, Herod only went on to live for about two more years. And he came down with an illness and died suddenly and horrifically. The history books say that he, he had, uh, leading up to his death, he had a fever. He had intense whole body itching, inflammation, hunger, edema of the feet, ulcerated bowels, gangrene, asthma, convulsions, that all of a sudden that he was brought down to nothing. That this once great and powerful king uh, died. And his kingdom went into somebody else's hands. And as extreme as that picture may be, I think it is a great picture 
of what our lives look like when we sit on the throne. You see, our lives are not a constant struggle for control. They are a constant struggle for the illusion of control. We live like we're in charge, but really, we can't guarantee our next breath. But there is a path forward. And that path begins with us seeing that. That path begins with us realizing how dangerous our kingship really is for us. If you think about this story, why did the Magi come to Jerusalem? What what were they expecting? Well, I imagine they were expecting to find a people who were excited about this news. I bet you they were expecting to find that they had already found him and were already worshiping. Right? It's the question, you know, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? It seems to imply, you know, which room of the palace is he in? Where do we go? But Herod was not happy. He wasn't happy to hear that there was another king because he thought he was doing a fine job on his own. Despite all of his fears, despite all of his insecurity, despite the fact that the entire nation hated him, despite the fact that his own children were trying to kill him, he was unwilling to admit that maybe, just maybe, the Messiah would be better at leading than him. Now, compare his reaction to Paul's reaction. Compare the way Herod thought about his instincts to the way Paul thinks about his own. In Romans 7, when Paul recognizes that there is this battle going on inside of him, when Paul says that there is a war being waged, that there is this little Herod rising up inside of me that is constantly trying to dethrone the king, here's what he says. Chapter 7, verse 28, he says, Wretched, chapter, verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul does the one thing that Herod would never do. He cries out for a Savior. And this isn't the first time either. Romans 7 is not Paul giving the account of his conversion. This is him describing his life many years after coming to faith. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is the confession that has to be on the Christian's lips every minute of every day. I am a wretch, and I need a Savior. I am the usurper who is constantly trying to dethrone the king, and I'm worse than Herod. Because at least Herod admitted that's what he wanted. But me, I I profess Christ with my mouth. And I murder him in my heart. I don't reverence him. I live in contempt of him. Who will save me? The only way to change is to see that danger. 
The only way to change is to see the danger of our kingship and to surrender, to repent. And not just once. Not just that first time when you first come to believe. Now, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe some of you do need to to come that first time. Maybe some of you need to repent and let Christ take hold of your life. But Christians who, who have already done this, this still must be our prayer constantly. The Reformation, do you remember the story of the Reformation? It began when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the the door in Wittenberg. And the first of those theses was that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. That's the definition of the Christian life, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And it can be painful. It can be hard to admit that. But it's the only way forward. To turn away from your control again and turn back to His. This week, as we head towards Christmas, we need to admit this. You need to admit this, that you are a habitual traitor, a habitual usurper. You need to cry out for him to come and take control of your life. That's the only path forward. Because we see here that there, when two kingdoms are at odds, when your kingdom and God's kingdom butt heads, either you surrender or like Herod, you get destroyed. Now, As we think about that, as we face our need for repentance, we also need to remember something. That all of this is grounded in the good news. Maybe as you're thinking about your own life, as you're thinking about who calls the shots and who's in control, maybe you're feeling a little weighed down by this stuff. And you know, I I hope, at least a little bit, I hope, you are. I hope that you realize that the rebellion in your life is deep and it's pervasive. I hope you realize that when you are acting like you're the king of your life, that is what has left you feeling beaten and broken and unfulfilled. And if it hasn't yet, it certainly will. I hope you feel that way. But maybe you're in a place now where you you look at your life and you're looking at your continued failing. You're looking at how many times it's been by now and you wonder, does Christ really want to be your Lord? Maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe he does want to crush me by now. Why would he accept someone so bent on defying him? Why would he want someone who's been so disloyal after all the grace and mercy that he's shown? Now, someday I hope we're going to get a chance to to really preach through Romans and to work through some of these passages I'm referencing and really unpack what they have to say. 
But right now, if that's how you're feeling, if you're feeling beaten down, I want to remind you of how good our gospel is. You see, after Paul comes to that point where all he can do is look at himself and say, I am such a wretch, who could possibly save me? He follows it up with this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are good words. There was a guy I knew uh, who got into a really huge fight with his wife. And he told me the story. It was one of those fights that you can only have with somebody who you really know well. Where you say the, the kind of things that, that hurt so deeply because they're, they're true. He ended up after this fight so overwhelmed by the list of accusations that he had heard against him, accusations against his, his character flaws and his shortcomings, that he found himself walking down the side of the street just weeping, not knowing what to do, not knowing if he was going to be able to, to make it in the marriage. But thankfully, in that moment, he called a, a Christian counselor that he knew, and she gave him some really good advice. She said to him, some of those things that your wife said to you are probably true. Some of those ways that, that you hurt her, probably you have hurt her, and you're going to have to work on those things. And it's going to take time, and it's going to be really hard. But tonight, I want you to know this. Tonight, I want you to open up Romans 8, and I want you to remember that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And if anyone stands in front of the Lord, and brings out that list of accusations, even if they're true, he will simply quote back to them. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This man may be a wretch. <laughs> he may be a disaster, but the verdict is already in. He's mine. And he has been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Friends, that is the message I want you to hear this week as we prepare to celebrate the coming of our King. That when we surrender to Him, we come to a King who is like no other. He is not a King like Herod who turns on his children. He is not a King who comes in wrath. No. When God saw a world that was filled with traitors, when he saw a world that was filled with usurpers, that was filled with pretenders, he didn't come like Herod in vengeance. He didn't come to kill us and to wipe out his enemies. That moment, I said, when, when Herod kills all the children, it's called the, the slaughter of the innocents because they hadn't done anything against Herod. 
But in our case, in this world, there are no innocents. We have all plotted against the Lord. And yet Jesus, King Jesus, didn't crush his enemies. Instead, he stood in our place. The only one who ever was truly innocent before God on the cross allowed himself to be slaughtered so we could go free. He took our condemnation so that God could declare that there is no longer any condemnation for those who trust in him. That's the kind of king we have. And the call to us today is simply, believe it. Stop fighting against him. Stop believing that you can do better on your own. Repent. Believe the gospel. Believe that his lordship is better than yours. Lay down your crown and take up his cross. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said, whoever surrenders to me will reign with me. Let's pray. Father, we are um, a hard-nosed and stiff-necked people. We see this beautiful story. We hear this proclamation of the perfect salvation that you've won for us, about how great a length that you have gone through to, to make us your own. And yet day after day, we fight this war. We turn from you. We try to call the shots and live a life that we think will be better. And it never fills us. It never satisfies us. Lord, I pray that today, that this week, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, Father, would you show us the good news? Would you show us how much better your Lordship is than our own? And would you call us to yourself again? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.